This is a crawdad song. Wake up, honey, you slept too late. Bing, boo. Wake up, honey, you slept too late. Crawdad man done past your gate. Welcome to Crawdads and Taters, Red State Rebels. We are writers, activists, and leftists who come from two of the reddest states in the country, Oklahoma and Idaho. When we say red, we may be referring to the indigenous, socialist, and labor histories of these states, or the right-wing fanaticism that they're known for today. As rebels, we use a leftist lens to analyze current events, political issues, and revolutionary movements that support our collective survival. So so my crawl, that's three, four, dime. Your crawl, that's not as fat as mine. How's it going, taters? Good. How are you enjoying winter so far? What winter? <laughs> you mean all of these mild temperatures we've been having haven't convinced you that it's winter yet? Not really. No, it feels more like October still. Yeah, or even September. And then we had having... more snow last September than we have this winter. That's right. I mean, we have had no, almost no snow this year in Colorado at all. Nope. That's insane. And now we're having tornadoes all across the Midwest. It's terrible. I know. Probably over 100 people have died in those. Yeah, they haven't even been able to find the bodies yet. I mean, it's like, they're saying at least 70 dead today, but it's got to be far more than that. We saw those pictures of... of Kentucky in those towns that are just leveled. Yeah, it's just awful. Awful. I mean, when when have we ever had tornadoes in December? I really can't remember having tornadoes in December. Yeah, we haven't had tornadoes in December. I mean, this was a record-breaking storm. Mm-hmm. But you don't hear the news talking about climate crisis, do you? No. No one seems to really be making that connection, at least yeah. not on the mainstream media that we've heard. Yeah, these extreme weather events just seem to happen all the time but there's nothing connecting them to each other. Guess it doesn't have anything to do with oil and gas, burning fossil fuels, just freak events that just freak events are happening more and more every single day since we started burning carbon. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, that's for another topic. But today, before we begin, we really wanted to thank all of our patrons. And we know money is especially tight around the holidays and especially during 2021 and 2020, this pandemic economy that we've been living through where so many people have taken financial hits over the last couple of years. So we really appreciate your support for independent podcasters like us. And we know there's like a million podcasters out there. So we deeply appreciate your support and your and your loyalty for listening to Crawdads and Taters. And we wanted to give a special shout out to our VIP Rebel patron, Liz Font. Your generous monthly donation, Liz, is so appreciated. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much, Liz. We really do appreciate that financial support to keep us going. And for anyone else who appreciates the work we do on Crawdads and Taters, you can please become a patron at patreon.com slash crawdadsandtaters. Yep. In our last episode, we talked broadly about what neoliberalism is with a kind of a brief mention of how it enables and supports fascism. We want to dive into that question more deeply today. Yeah, it seems like a really timely topic right now due to the upsurge in fascist violence and rhetoric that seems to be erupting all over the country. 
you know, in this post-Trump era that we're living in, I feel like so many of us turned off and became numb under Trump's daily barrage of verbal abuse and racism and sexism and his overall belligerence that now that he's off the media airwaves, it's like really easy just to kind of tune out a lot of the other right-wing violence and and rhetoric that's going on because we have this sort of self, or I have this self-preservation technique to, to do that now. But we really can't afford to because right-wing fascist violence is all around us. You know, if you stop and focus for a minute and really take a look at how much of it is happening all over the United States, it's even just, you know, since the beginning of 2021, it's it's really very horrifying. Yeah. And let's kind of talk a little bit about what's been happening recently. You know, we saw what happened in the streets of Portland during the BLM protests with clashes between Antifa and right-wing counter-protesters. Yeah. At one point, a Patriot Prayer member, Aaron Danielson, was shot and killed during this conflict. Mm-hmm. His suspected killer, Michael Raynol, was killed by law enforcement in what amounted to an extrajudicial execution, yeah. which President Trump called the actual retribution. Right. He just like justified it right off the bat without any question. Yeah. He just came out and said, this is retribution for Antifa. You know, the police investigated themselves and claimed that he shot first. But his weapons magazine was actually full and witnesses said that he didn't even point his gun at law enforcement and that the police fired on him without warning. He was not given any kind of due process. He was just murdered by the police. Mm -hmm. And that murder was completely supported by President Trump. Yeah, that was was essentially just a fascist action. Use the police to kill a left wing protester. Yep. With support from the highest levels. And then, of course, who can forget January 6th? The Democrats will never let us forget about that. Right. Um, But seriously, it was another action of right-wing protesters. They stormed the actual Capitol building and people died. Mm -hmm. And there's still, you know, I mean, there's this ongoing investigation, but I mean, the police aren't doing anything really in comparison to, or the FBI, they tend to do with right-wing violence. They just kind of look the other way. Yeah, just recently, um, there was a PowerPoint that was released that President Trump had either made or had prepared for him about how to maintain his power. Hmm. So, I mean, he's directly implicated in this coup attempt. Right. And I guess, you know, Trump's not in prison yet, as far as I know. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I think we'd hear about that if he was arrested. And then there was all the the politicians, the Republicans that aided and abetted the insurrectionists and let them into the Capitol building and just pretty much opened doors and showed them where to go. They were giving them tours of the Capitol building before the actual event happened. Right. And they're not in prison. So last I heard Lauren Boebert's taking some really nice pictures with guns and a Christmas tree (laughs) and their family. Right. Along with several other Republican politicians. (laughs) Oh my God. Happy holidays from the Republican Party. Here's our (laughs) AR-15. Exactly. Yeah, we had the insurrection on the Capitol. And then, you know, we had Kyle Rittenhouse in the BLM protest shooting three unarmed protesters in Kenosha. And we just saw his acquittal a couple of weeks ago by, was it an all-white jury? Not 100% sure on that. It was largely white in any case. It was a largely white jury. 
and now he's some kind of celebrity. He's been on like talk shows and and you know, another recent event we have this whole new black flag phenomena Ugh. where these mainly Trump supporters are flying black flags, like a black American flag actually. It's kind of like still has the stars and stripes. Right, but, but it's, it's all, all filled very in. Black, mm-hmm. blacked out. Mm-hmm. These flags are an indication that they will give no quarter. They're actually a vestige from the Confederacy. And they indicate a least symbolic commitment to violence against the left. Yeah. I mean, we see them being flown and there's these videos like all over TikTok of people flying the black flags who are also talking about imminent civil war. They're threatening civil war because of the quote unquote stolen election from Trump. You know, the vast the vaccine mandates, the mask mandates, and really they're, you know, threatening civil war over any kind of government mandate, except of course mandates over women's bodies and their reproductive rights, but fascists have always been fine with those. Yeah. So here's an example of the kind of rhetoric that is you know, it's prolific on right-wing TikTok these days. So let's listen to this clip here. September 11, 2001, a day America will never forget. Thanks to that coward Joe Biden, there's going to be a war on our homeland. But what the terrorists do not know that there's hundreds of thousands, even millions of pissed off gun-toting Americans ready to take back their country. You can bet your ass on one of them. We will not back down. We will not surrender to the Taliban. Let's take our country back. <laughs> With the Taliban. Okay. Um... <laughs> we will not surrender to the Taliban. No, we won't. Is Joe Biden the Taliban now? I'm not sure. <laughs> Last I checked, we actually did surrender to the Taliban in Afghanistan, <laughs> leaving them millions of dollars worth of equipment. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And this guy, this guy's on TikTok, right? Yeah, his name's Josh Smith. Yeah. Might be a fake name. I don't know. But this is, uh, this is the kind of thing that's all over TikTok right now. It's everywhere. Yeah. And if you look on TikTok for like Black Flag or Black Flag Movement, um, there's a lot of people giving similar talks about this being, you know, ready to defend their homes with guns. Like you said, like millions of gun-toting Americans ready to defend us against well, the Taliban or Joe Biden. <laughs> I'm not sure which. Or Antifa or Marxists or... <laughs> this talk is actually dangerous that this could very easily turn to action. Yeah, like we already saw at the Capitol on January 6th. And I feel like that was just you know, the first of, of many potential actions that the right wing is threatening. They're they're primed and ready to do something again. And really all this talk of civil war and black flags, all of it kind of comes on the heels of a war on public education. You know, we've already been seeing over these last few months, all of this anti-critical race theory legislation and how it's been introduced in 29 states across the country because the right wing has convinced its base that critical race theory is a Marxist plot. Yeah, And if you haven't listened to our episode on that already, I recommend going back and having a listen to how Christopher Rufo has used this CRT as a dog whistle to try to unite the right. Yeah, and making a ton of money off of it as well. And we're looking at currently just a week ago, I mean, the Supreme Court started looking at this case that could potentially overturn Roe v. Wade. If this Mississippi law is upheld by the Supreme Court, looks like abortion bans are expected in 26 states with another dozen states they're likely to follow immediately thereafter. 
And now Guardian's reporting that one in three Republicans are willing to resort to violence in order to save America. Yeah, that headline, I remember when that came out, that, that's when I really like paused and took a deep breath and realized to what measures right-wingers and fascists are willing to go in order to, quote unquote, save America. And many of our elected leaders aren't helping this either. We have Marjorie Taylor Greene in a recent interview on the show Patriot Takes. Here she is being interviewed by Steve Bannon. It's a regime. It's a communist regime. It's been a communist takeover of our country. And it happened on January 21st. And that is who Joe Biden is. He, they are completely... When you say that, people you know, are going to sit there and go in the mainstream media, oh, this is why she's crazy. These are not communists. Back up why you think they're Marxists and communists. Why, why, what's your evidence for that? And, and how do you make that statement? The evidence, study history. Simply study history. Okay. <laughs> just you know study history because i really have no idea what i'm talking about so study history <laughs> yeah just pick up a history book and um <laughs> and with the status of the u.s history books that you might find something in there to defend joe biden being communist but i don't think our public education system is quite that bad yet not yet, but we're headed in that direction. We are definitely headed in that direction with these CRT bans that are preventing stuff like teaching that the U.S. was founded on racism. So clearly, fascism is on the rise in the United States, which has inspired us to expand on our conversation about neoliberalism from our last episode and really explore this time why opposing neoliberalism is necessary in order to defeat fascism. But before we elaborate, let's define fascism for the sake of this podcast. Traditionally, fascism has been seen as an ultranationalist regime that rejects socialism, democracy, and liberalism. In the United States, it's taken on the trappings of settler colonialism and Christianity that the country was founded on. In the words of scholar and activist Michael Parenti, U.S. fascists are super patriots who uphold the age-old traditions of patriarchy, settler colonialism, white nationalism, and white supremacy. The motto, Make American Great Again, harkens back to a past that has been glorified in the minds of those who believe it. So these modern-day fascists generally believe that liberalism, socialism, communism, and immigrants have destroyed the vision that the Founding Fathers had. By upholding patriarchy, they are also extremely threatened by women's rights, LGBTQ and two-spirit rights, basically anything that isn't white male patriarchy. Yeah, and Parenti's definition of super patriots certainly describes the kind of trends we're seeing right now. And I think it's fair to say that most liberal media outlets in the United States will focus on these ideological and extreme right-wing tendencies as the evidence that there is a fascist threat. And while that's absolutely true, the corporate media will never describe for us the economic conditions that lead to fascism and instead focus exclusively on it from a culture war perspective, looking at right versus left identity politics, which actually doesn't help us to understand the structural changes we need to make in order to fight fascism. It's like they're always reporting on the symptoms of fascism without ever addressing the causes. Hey, that's kind of like how the media always reports on extreme weather events, but doesn't even mention the climate crisis that's creating these extreme <laughs> weather events. Right. What is fueling the climate crisis? Hmm, I wonder. But yeah, we never see them making the connection. Like, why are fascist movements on the rise? Why are these black flags everywhere? Why are these insurrections happen happening at the Capitol? But by linking fascism to neoliberalism, you and I are not just describing a left versus right culture war. 
we're actually describing an economic and structural basis for fascism, which we think is really at the root of the chronic social upheaval that we've been seeing for decades. Yeah. And in our last episode, you know, we used UC Santa Cruz sociologist William Robinson's definition of 21st century fascism as quote, the dictatorship of transnational capital, which is a very nice, simple definition. But I think we need to go into a little bit more in depth about the economic conditions that lead to up to fascism. Right. We quote from Robinson a lot in this podcast. And just as a reminder, he's a Marxist. His analysis is really influential to both of us. And the reason that I see that Robinson links fascism to transnational capital is that he's a Marxist and he understands that extreme global inequality with a tiny global ruling class lording over the world's poor and working classes is really the ultimate goal of capitalism. And that it's capitalism's inherent nature to concentrate wealth into fewer and fewer hands. And because capitalism has gone global, fascism can no longer be seen as an ultra-nationalist project. Rather, it's the logical result of extreme social inequality on a global scale. Under neoliberal capitalism, economic insecurity and precarity for the working class have become a chronic condition. So Robinson's looking at fascism from a transnational economic perspective. And so historically, you know, fascism hasn't just been about evangelical, patriarchal, white supremacist ideologies. That's just a flavor that kind of takes on in the United States. Mm-hmm. But if we want to look at the history of fascism, it actually started as an anti-communist movement mm. on the streets of Italy under the leadership of Benito Mussolini. And at first seemed like this ultranationalist 20th century version of fascism doesn't seem like it's compatible with William Robinson's definition as the dictatorship of transnational capital. But in reality, they really work together. Because we see is that fascists use these cultural elements to rally their base and gain power. So they still can use this white supremacy and nationalism, make America great again. And so this was what we also saw in history is that Mussolini allied with the social conservatives and the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. which is, like I say, very similar to Trump allying with the evangelical right, using Roe v. Wade. Then we look back at Mussolini, once they gained power, he opened things up to corporate control. Mm-hmm. After seizing power, he oversaw the widespread privatization of formerly state-owned industries like the telephone networks and metal production. And this was actually the first large-scale privatization seen in history. Mm-hmm. And kind of as we mentioned in our last episode, Hitler did something similar when he took over in Nazi Germany. Right. He welcomed international corporations like Ford and GM to open up manufacturing in Germany. You know, when they eliminate the trade unions and the socialists and the communists, it makes for a very ripe environment for capitalism to take over. Right. This is a super important history you're describing. So I just want to reiterate it. What you're saying is that this right wing, super patriotic, white supremacist, patriarchal messaging is how fascists often obtain power. It's how they rally their base. It's how they get into power in the first place. But but once they have that power, their broader political goals begin to shift and move toward amassing capital globally or becoming transnational capitalists, as Robinson would say. And this is also why the anti-communist Red Scare rhetoric is such an important component of the fascist project and why you can see that anti-communist rhetoric 
in fascist movements all over the world. It's about defeating the working class. Yeah, once you weaken the communist movement and paint all reds as the enemy and put them in jail or kill them, it really opens things up for this right-wing movement to gain power. And to expand capital. Yes. Globally. So we definitely see this in the United States. As far as the anti-communist rhetoric, we've, we've seen it a lot lately. Just a few months ago, Trump was defining critical race theory as a Marxist plot. And even under Biden, you know, we have this new Cold War fervor just brewing all the time with this anti-Russia, anti-China sentiment coming from the nation's highest officials, you know, Secretary of Defense Austin and Secretary of State Blinken. And just this last week, the White House passed the largest military spending bill since World War II, with a 5% increase over last year's military spending bill. The $768 billion military budget is $24 billion higher than what Biden even requested, despite the fact that the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan. And this package includes funds aimed at countering China's power. That's one of the main reasons for this increase, as well as an extra $28 billion for nuclear weapons funding. Like Tupac said, they got money for wars but can't feed the poor. And yeah, this anti-communist rhetoric is just becoming a mainstay of both Democrats and Republicans. Yeah. Biden's whole administration is just looking to create this new Cold War with China as an excuse to keep sending more and more money to the military industrial complex. Yeah. Well, they have to manufacture a new enemy in order to justify all this increased military spending, as if China and Russia are really a military threat to the United States. Here's a clip from William Hartung. He's the director of the Arms and Security Project at the Center for International Policy. He was on Democracy Now! last week. Well, the U.S. spends about 10 times what Russia spends, about three times what China spends. It has 13 times as many active nuclear warheads in its stockpile as China does. We've got 11 aircraft carriers of a type that China doesn't have. We've got 800 U.S. military bases around the globe, while China has three. So this whole idea that China and Russia are military threats to the United States has primarily been manufactured uh, to, to jump up the military budget. Uh, and so far, unfortunately, at least in the halls of Congress and the Biden administration, uh, that's been successful. So, yeah, there you have it. Straight talk from um, William Hartung. 800 military bases to three. I guess we need a few more just to make sure China doesn't come and get us. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so military spending bills are always passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. Both parties are heavily invested in pleasing the military-industrial complex. They're taking millions of dollars in lobbyist money, which is essentially just bribing them to send more money to Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and all these other contractors. Mm -hmm. And so just recently when Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Rand Paul proposed an amendment blocking a $650 million arms sale to Saudi Arabia who is currently carrying out a war against Yemen, which has been described by the UN as the greatest humanitarian crisis in the world. Genocide. Essentially, yes, genocide. Yeah. Yeah. And this amendment by Bernie and Rand Paul was voted down by both Democrats and Republicans. Right. So like with so many other things, Democrats provide all kinds of logistical support for fascism and for military state. 
they also provide rhetorical backing to Republicans. It's often the softer, gentler version of the Red Scare rhetoric, rather than the overtly racist, xenophobic language that we hear coming from Republicans. But both parties are hyping up the Cold War. And when that's going on, when you have that bipartisan Red Scare consensus, it gives a license to people like Congressman John Kennedy of Louisiana to employ Red Scare tactics as a dog whistle in his questioning of potential cabinet picks for Biden. Here is Congressman John Kennedy interrogating Biden's pick for Comptroller of Currency, Saul Omarava, who was born in Kazakhstan in the former Soviet Union. 2019, you joined the Facebook group, a Marxist Facebook group, to discuss socialist and anti-capitalist views. Now, that's what I see from your record. And you have the right to believe every one of these things. You do. This is America. But I don't mean any disrespect. I, I don't know whether to call you professor or comrade. Call her comrade. Comrade. <laughs> I guess this disqualifies me from being eligible for any positions in the Biden administration. I'm yeah. in several Marxist Facebook groups. <laughs> yeah, I think it disqualifies both of us daters, but I just love that clip because this is America. You can believe whatever you want, but I don't know whether to call you professor or comrade. <laughs> And this tactic actually worked because she ended up not getting the position. Right. She ended up withdrawing from the position. Mm -hmm. oh, Just God. because she was born in the former Soviet Union. Oh, my God. Incredible. Incredible. There you have it. The Red Scare dog whistle bully tactic at work. I mean, as if Biden would actually nominate someone who is a Marxist for any position. Oh, my God. Yeah, and Senator Kennedy is, you know, he's a real winner. Here he is again describing AOC and President Biden. No fair-minded person believes that cops, many of whom are racial minorities, get up every day and go to work hoping for the opportunity to be able to hurt someone, including but not limited to people of color. That's nonsense. But the wokeristas, like the congresswoman, they really believe that. They really do hate cops just because they're cops. They really do want to defund the police, which will result in a, a, a fantastic impression of hell. The, the Wokeristas really do believe that when a, when a cop shoots a criminal, it is always, every single time, the cop's fault. But when a criminal shoots a cop, it is always, every single time, the gun's fault. Uh, the, these folks really do have contempt for America. They should have gratitude, but they have contempt. And they're not happy, and won't be happy, until they take a sledgehammer to America's core. Now, you're, you're saying to yourself, probably, look, this is America. You're entitled to believe what you want. And, and I agree with that. And I have hope for them. Um, jellyfish have survived 650 million years without a brain. So there is hope for them. But, but, but what I'm disappointed in is President Biden. Yeah. Uh, he has encouraged this. I listened to him last night. And he knows better. Uh, no one 
can get to be his age with his experience and not know this is nonsense. And I hear people say all the time, you know, cut him some slack. Maybe he's lost his fastball. No, he knows better. And he hasn't, he's encouraged it. And it is a hurting America and it is hurting people. And I knew that President Biden would be left of center. I never dreamed he'd be left of Lenin. <laughs> okay. Oh my God, it doesn't get better than that. <laughs> Biden is not left of center. I mean, he's right of center, if anything. He might have lost his fastball. I don't know that he ever had one, honestly. <laughs> I don't think he had a fastball. So, Bernie does have a fastball we saw in the baseball game. Yeah. Feel the dreams. <sighs> oh my God, that is so, he's a piece of work. Clearly, Republicans have no idea who Lenin was, right. what communism is, what Marxism is. No idea. But you know, this fascist rhetoric today still has a very strong anti-communist link. Mm -hmm. And this anti-communism has been mainstreamed in the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. It's perfectly normal for today's Republicans to use communism as a dog whistle against any kind of perceived threat from the so-called left, whether it's even Biden proposing a spending plan that would fix some of our infrastructure and privatize most of it. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but they're still called communists or wokeristas. <laughs> And, you know, that's what their base is supposed to be afraid of, is the communist movement in the United States. Right. And that's why they're flying these black flags, because they're afraid that Biden's going to bring in the Taliban and communism. Right. All of this anti-communist rhetoric and, and messaging is why we're using the term fascism here. We're using it very deliberately. We could just be referring to Kennedy and all of these right-wing nut jobs as right-wing extremists. But we're saying it's a fascist movement because it's fascism that comes out of all anti-communist movements. Because historically, fascists are anti-working class, anti-socialist, and anti-communist. And if we look around the world, we can see that fascist movements around the world, whether we're talking about Trump's flavor of fascism, or Bolsonaro in Brazil, or Modi in India or in history, Pinochet in Chile, all of these fascist dictators, they weren't just conservative social movements. They are pointedly anti-communist, pro-capitalist movements set on destroying the working class and enriching transnational capitalists. Which gets us right back to Robinson's definition of 21st century fascism as the dictatorship of transnational capital. Right. And that leads us into the discussion of what kinds of economic conditions tend to lead to fascism and how are we seeing those conditions in the United States today? Yeah, we can definitely see some similarities between the economic conditions today, which have been created by these neoliberal policies of the last 40 years longer even, mm -hmm. and those in the past that led directly to the rise of fascism in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Fascist movements in Italy and Germany were created by the economic conditions which rose out of the post-World War I capitalist crisis. If we look at Germany, after World War I, their economy was completely collapsed. They owed war reparations of 132 billion gold marks, which would be the roughly equivalent of 269 billion U.S. dollars today. 
And this debt meant they were unable to spend on rebuilding their own economy. And the result was the famous hyperinflation of the Weimar Republic. By 1923, the German mark was basically just completely devalued. And this financial crisis, as all financial crises tend to do, crushed the working class. Yeah. And post-World War I Germany sounds a lot like the United States after several decades of neoliberalism, honestly. We see here kind of similar conditions. The value of the dollar is declining. The working class has largely been crushed after two years of pandemic that has not been decently managed by any kind of public health policy. So many jobs were already sent overseas under transnational capitalism, NAFTA, free trade agreements, etc., that at this point, there's really not that much left of the U.S. economy in terms of manufacturing jobs. Yeah, we're seeing a crisis of capitalism today. That's, like I say, similar to the end of World War One. If we look at Italy as well, you know, the war industry had been the main driving force between, behind their economy during the war. And once the war ended, their manufacturing economy collapsed because there was no longer a need for weapons. Mm-hmm. And soldiers returning from the front, they couldn't find work. Unemployment went up. The lira lost value as inflation soared. There was a massive upsurge in strikes throughout the country. And this led to the industrialists backing Mussolini's fascist party Mm -hmm. against the working class. Right. Because Mussolini was focused on breaking the leftist trade unions, the socialist and the communist parties. And so with the backing of the big capitalists, militant fascist groups actually attacked workers, socialists, and communists in the streets. Hmm. And this alliance with the Italian political right led to membership in the fascist party soaring from 1,000 members during the war to 250,000 members in 1921. And by the end of 1922, the fascists had eliminated most of the socialists and trade unions and seized power with a march on Rome. Wow. So Mussolini allied with big corporations and social conservatives to attack and kill the left. That sounds familiar. Yeah, that's what we're seeing again today. Back in the 1920s, Mussolini's fascist party allied with the more traditional conservatives brought together by their anti-Marxist, anti-communist, anti-socialist sentiments. Mm -hmm. And Mussolini was willing to take on some of their social characteristics, such as supporting the Catholic Church, relegating women to the role of childbearing banning abortion and birth control, and supporting free enterprise. So here we see the marriage of the economic and the ideological forms of fascism that we so often see with these fascist movements that we've been describing. There's definitely this pattern of fascists allying with big capital, today it would be transnational capital, and the most conservative elements of society, such as the evangelical right, and then With this alliance, they get together to eliminate working class-based movements and enable the expansion of corporate control. And this is really what we're seeing today in the United States. Right. They ally with the evangelical right, with white supremacists, with patriarchal forces, with very settler colonial mentalities, with anti-critical race theory. They really try to capture their base. And we can see the desperate economic conditions after World War I both in Italy and Germany, that often precede a fascist takeover. And in the United States, as we've been saying, these desperate economic conditions look like 40 plus years of neoliberalism. In our last episode, we defined neoliberalism in depth. But for a quick review, let's talk about what neoliberalism does. First of all, it increases wealth inequality by moving wealth to the top reducing taxes for big businesses and enriching the ruling class through privatizing the profits 
while socializing the costs. We've seen a lot of that recently. Yep. It guts welfare, weakens public and social programs like education and healthcare. It imposes austerity measures on social spending while increasing spending on military and police and corporate subsidies. And at the same time, it removes labor protections, making it harder for workers to unionize. We talked about how neoconservatism and neoliberalism are like two wings of the same bird. Neoconservatives constantly argue for deficit reduction to reduce social spending, while neoliberals and neoconservatives alike want an increased budget for military and police spending. And then on the global level, neoliberalism creates free trade agreements and deregulates transnational capitalism which makes it easier for capital to move across national boundaries while preventing the people from escaping economic suffering imposed upon them by increasing border security and military budgets. Right. And all these decades of exporting jobs, wealth, and destroying the social welfare state have led to higher and higher levels of class resentment. Poverty, precarity, and working class struggle increase while capital becomes monopolized into fewer and fewer hands. That's what we've seen over the last 40 plus years. Global banks and transnational corporations have more political power than national governments. The world's richest 1% have more than twice as much wealth as 6.9 billion people, while almost half of humanity is living on less than $5.50 a day. This is global capitalism. So given this widespread economic inequality, which is on the rise all over the world, not just in the United States, and has been exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic, mm-hmm. we're pretty concerned about what's going to happen in the elections of 2022 and 2024 as far as making a further shift to the right goes. Right. Honestly, in order to counter this kind of growing trend of social and economic inequality, The Biden administration would need an exceedingly bold, and let's be honest, socialist agenda, you know, something like what Bernie's campaign had begun to offer in the primaries in order to address this growing class resentment that is currently being harnessed and exploited by fascist forces on the right. So let's look at Biden's report card. We know that he started out with a very watered down agenda of social promises, touting not his bold social agenda, but touting his own ability to make compromises, to reach across the aisle and meet the fascist, I mean, the Republican Party halfway. So let's take a look at how he has performed so far in terms of his actual campaign promises. Taters, I think you're the uh, the expert on this. All right. Yeah, I think uh, parent-teacher conferences aren't going to go very well for Biden after we <laughs> <laughs> For mommy and daddy see this report card. (laughs) I don't even know where to begin with the Biden administration. We remember when the Democrats were campaigning in Georgia, promising us that $2,000 would go out the door. Yep. If Democrats won the Senate races. In Georgia. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. And what happened after they won? These checks turned into $1,400 checks instead of the $2,000. Yep. Yep, because $1,400 from Biden plus $600 from Trump from last fall equals $2,000. That's some pretty good math. (laughs) Good job, Democrats. But that's not the same thing as $2,000 from Biden. It isn't. And that's not the same thing as being able to pay rent next month. No. And so that was a great start. And then after that, things just kept on going that way, really. Yep. 
the parliamentarian who we'd never really heard of during the Trump administration (laughs) became the most powerful person in the country. Unlimited power for the parliamentarian, more powerful than Biden himself, more powerful than Chuck Schumer, more powerful than Nancy (laughs) Pelosi, even with Democratic majorities. Yep. And technically the parliamentarian could actually just be fired and has no actual say in anything in legislative matters. Right. But the Democrats decided that her decision to remove the $15 minimum wage from the reconciliation bill, that was the last word on the matter. (sighs) Yeah, the effing parliamentarian. That was, it was just mind blowing to watch how much power she had. Yeah, and the $15 minimum wage was something that Biden even campaigned on in the primaries. Mm -hmm. And then just nowhere to be found. Total lie. Yep. Not a surprise, but total lie. Mm -hmm. And so then, yeah, talking about climate change, we just recently saw these tornadoes ripping through the middle of the country, which definite result of climate change. We've seen flooding in the Northwest. We've seen record fire years the last several summers. Mm-hmm. I mean, smoke has just covered the entire United States mm-hmm. at certain points, making it difficult to breathe. Yeah, the Western United States is basically just burning off the map. And while it was burning, Biden was campaigning on believing scientists. Right. Believe science. He said, we believe science. The Democrats believe science. And what do scientists say? Scientists say that we must ban fracking and keep oil and gas in the ground. Yep. And immediately Biden has said he will not ban fracking. Mm-hmm. He did halt the Keystone XL pipeline, right? which might be the best thing he's done in his presidency. Right. But he's taken no action on the Dakota Access Pipeline or Enbridge Line 3, both pipelines which are threatening native land, yep. threatening the water supply. Enbridge Line 3 goes across the headwaters of the Mississippi River. Yep. And the natives are protesting... He's no action. He could stop both of these projects. Yeah. This is fracked tar sand, some of the dirtiest oil in the world. Yep. And and other nations are ending their use of coal. Biden has said, no, we're not going to do that. He decided to side with Joe Manchin and remove any such kind of promises on ending coal usage because Joe Manchin is big into coal. Yeah. He did that at the COP26, right? Mm-hmm. That's when, like, he went he went all the way to Glasgow so that he could fail to promise to stop using coal. Yeah, which is extremely dirty. Right. And it's actually come out that he's signing oil and gas leases on public land mm-hmm. at a faster rate than Trump did. Right. 332 per month compared to Trump's average of 300 between 2018 to 2020. Right. So this is our new environmental president. He's outpaced Trump on new oil and gas leases. And this was something he campaigned on promising no new oil and gas leases in public land. That's nauseating. And of course, how is the media covering it? They're they're not. And then there's the recent auction of 80 million acres of offshore leases in the Gulf of Mexico. I think that's a record for amount of offshore drilling leases. Like, that's a huge number. That's insane. He's blatantly breaking campaign promises right and left. Yeah, he campaigned on spending $2 trillion during his first term to address the climate crisis. Right. Which and, was only a fraction of what Bernie was going was proposing, right? Like yeah, Bernie was... $16 trillion, wasn't it? Somewhere close to that. Yeah. Yeah, so... 
let's look at the Build Back Better Act, which might not even pass at this point. <laughs> but it allocates a total of $555 billion, but it's over 10 years, not during his first term. Okay, so if we do the math, Biden promised $2 trillion over four years or $500 billion a year. And then under the current Build Back Better Act, now being touted by the media as the largest climate bill in history, spends only $55 billion a year. So $55 billion versus the $500 billion that he promised. That's a huge disparity that hardly anyone in the media is talking about. Right. Almost a tenth of what he promised. Right. And this is being claimed to be like huge progress on climate change. Right. The largest climate bill in U.S. history. I mean, it might be the largest climate bill in U.S. history, but it doesn't even touch the surface of what needs to be done. No. And at the same time, they just passed this huge new defense budget. Yeah. You know who the leading contributor to climate change is? It's the military. It's the military. Yep. And so in one year of defense spending is more than 10 years of climate spending under the Biden budget. And fortunately, there has been a tiny bit of media coverage, at least on the left, citing studies that show that if the U.S. military were its own country, it would rank as the 47th largest emitter of carbon in the world. Wow. Yeah, it's insane. And, the, and here's Biden expanding drilling permits and signing offshore drilling leases. This is our lesser evil party. <laughs> I mean, so much for listening to the scientists on climate change. I'm glad I didn't vote for Biden. I'd be feeling pretty bad right now. You'd be feeling pretty shitty, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. So there's climate. And that's, I mean, we could go on and on about climate, but that's just one section of his report card. Yeah. Let's move on to the whole student loan debt forgiveness. Oh, right. Didn't. Didn't he make some promises around that? Yeah, here's a clip of him at a uh, town hall in Miami. That's why I'm going to eliminate a lot of your student debt. If you, in fact, are if you come from a family less than 125 grand and you went to a, a public university, I'm going to make sure that everybody in this generation gets $10,000 knocked off of their student debt as we try to get out of this god awful pandemic. What happened to that? Even his plan was pretty minimal, you know, $10,000 being knocked off and forgiving most of people's student debt if they come from a family making under $125,000. Right. So this is something that he actually could do without congressional approval. Mm -hmm. Manchin and Cinema would not get in the way. Mm -hmm. He has the power through executive order mm -hmm. to forgive all federal student debt. All federal student debt, not all just knocking off $10,000, forgiving yep. all federal student debt. And even Chuck Schumer has called for knocking off $50,000. Wow. But Biden won't even meet his own party in the middle at $10,000 of what he promised. Wow. That's just betrayal. And guess what he's doing instead? The administration is currently has a priority of making sure that student loan debt payments start again mm -hmm. in February. In February, right. They've been on pause for the pandemic. Right. Now that the Omicron variant is everywhere, the pandemic is over and it's time <laughs> for students to start paying those debts. We need to get those debt payments started again. That is Biden's priority. Wow. Wow. While we're talking about the pandemic, I just want to briefly mention, you know, what was Biden's plan for health care? Public option. He campaigned on a public option. 
Yeah. And what are we seeing currently is the largest increase in Medicare premiums ever. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> and no mention of a public option, no mention of any kind of healthcare plan. Right. And we have so many people without insurance and who are underinsured. I mean, that's <laughs> the problem is that people don't have insurance. Yeah. This is why Bernie was so popular with Medicare for all. Right. And with Biden, we're not even going to get Medicare for some. We're just going to get more expensive Medicare for people over 65. Yeah. And this is during a freaking pandemic where more people have died from COVID under Biden than died under Trump. Yeah, His COVID response has actually been exactly the same as Trump's with a few exceptions. There were less direct payments, only the $1,400 from Biden. Right. Biden's been kicking people off of unemployment, the expanded unemployment benefits, all gone. And there's more access to vaccines, which is the only good thing, but there's no actual action other than just saying, get a vaccine, get a vaccine, get a vaccine. No shutdowns. Remember when Kamala Harris promised $2,000 per month checks? Yeah. She co-sponsored the bill with Bernie Sanders on that, I believe. Right, right, right. <laughs> what happened to that? Then she was appointed as vice president and no talk of that. It's always been the GDP is growing. We're going to get people back to work. They're talking about a Biden boom now, which is like the most absurd thing I've ever heard. Oh, my God. Um, but yeah, let's talk about what he actually promised when he was running about the pandemic. Mm -hmm. He was going to create a U.S. Public Health Jobs Corps to mobilize at least 100,000 Americans across the country with support from trusted local organizations and communities most at risk to perform culturally competent approaches to contact tracing. Contact tracing. Hmm. Hmm, contact tracing. Have we ever done that in this country? Nope. Nope. Don't think we have. In order to protect at-risk populations. Mm -hmm. um, that, nope. Nope. None of that <laughs> happened. 100,000 people doing contact tracing. I don't think we have one in this country doing contact tracing. No. I mean, it's all of our, our entire approach is just about enriching the giant pharmaceutical industry by pushing vaccines while never having a comprehensive shutdown of the economy and never providing the population with any kind of sustainable funds to keep them afloat while the economy is shut down, while contact tracing is happening. None of that. We never had a public health response to this pandemic. We have only had a vaccine pharmaceutical industry response. And Pfizer's loving it. I can't remember what the numbers are, but it's like $29 billion in profits. Yeah, it's insane. Another thing Biden promised on the pandemic was to create a COVID-19 racial and ethnic disparities task force, hmm. which would have actually addressed some of the systemic racism in this country. Right. That doesn't sound likely. That's something Biden would never do. <laughs> Why did he even bother promising that? I mean, this is the same guy who like tells BLM activists that they need to tone down their rhetoric <laughs> around civil rights issues. Yeah. So Biden has not addressed the pandemic. The current seven day average is like 86,000 new cases per day across the United States. Right. It's just raging out of control. Mm hmm. Right. That is an impressively atrocious report card. I, I give him an F. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's not even everything. That's just like a few of the highlights. Yeah. We'd be talking for another hour if we really wanted to go over everything that Biden has failed to deliver on. Uh, 
I think that leads us into our next section, which is how do you expect the working class of the United States to rally for the Democrats in good faith in the 2022 midterms and in 2024 and future elections if they fail spectacularly to deliver on most of their promises? I guess the answer to that is we don't. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And if the recent elections in November are any indication of the direction things are going, I think we should be very worried. Take Virginia's governor race, where establishment Democrat Terry McAuliffe was defeated by the Republican businessman Glenn Youngkin. This election saw the highest voter turnout in recent gubernatorial race history with over 55% of the electorate voting. And it saw record amounts of spending. And Youngkin won with 50.7% of the vote. Terry McAuliffe ran as an anti-Trump candidate, whereas Youngkin ran on being a Christian businessman who vowed to ban critical race theory in Virginia. Wow. So it looks like it's the right that is really rallying their base and getting them out in electoral politics. Yep. Then it looks like the white supremacist is the one who won. Right. Exactly. And then let's look at what happened recently in Buffalo, right, where Democratic Socialist India Walton was running. Mm-hmm. So we go back to the spring. She won the Democratic primary against Byron Brown. Yep. Then... After that, the Republican candidate chose not to run. Mm -hmm. And then Byron Brown came back with a write-in campaign. Right. Because the courts ruled that he could not be on the ballot. (laughs) Right, because she she won the primary fair and square. So therefore, he was eliminated from the race, supposedly. But then with India Walton's being the only name on the ballot... Mm-hmm. Byron Brown ended up actually winning with this write-in campaign. And she built this incredible grassroots campaign without much money. She engaged with housing issues and a lot of issues that were really vital to the working class in Buffalo. Yep. She got the nomination fair and square. And then the leadership of the state Democratic Party in New York failed to endorse her. And then a ton of really wealthy donors poured a bunch of money into Byron Brown's campaign. He raised more than $1.5 million while flooding the airwaves with negative campaign ads against India Walton, the socialist. In other words, she might have won because she had this huge base of people behind her, but she didn't get the kind of support from the Democratic Party that would have allowed her to win. This is a really good illustration of where the Democratic Party stands. Mm -hmm. They routinely will break their own rules to make sure that Democratic Socialists candidates, you know, Democrats were happy to lose to Republicans running when they run their weak centrist campaigns like in Virginia. But then when it comes to a Democratic socialist who actually offers something for the working class of Buffalo, yeah, then they won't back her. They don't back her. They make right. sure that she loses to this you know, corporate backed wealthy campaign that Byron Brown ran. Right. And, you know, we've seen this time and time again, corporate Democrats would rather punch left and kill socialist movements, even if it means that we end up with right-wing Trumpian and other fascist leaders. Yeah, we certainly saw that with the way the Democratic establishment sabotaged Bernie's campaign in 2016 and 2020. Well, yeah, don't get me started. Oh, my God. I Like, I was so angry. I couldn't even do anything during both of those primaries except write articles trying to painstakingly document what rigged primary elections look like. 
we have to be honest about this, this point about Democrats preferring to lose to fascists rather than win with socialist politics. There are people on the left who comment about this, like even really savvy political pundits like Crystal Ball of Breaking Points. They're constantly pointing out how bad Democratic electoral strategies are, saying like, God, they're just, you know, it's almost like they're trying to lose. And whenever she says things like that, I'm thinking, oh my God, that's, you're so close. That's almost it. That is so close to me. <laughs> they are, they're happy to lose. They're actually happy to lose. The, the Democratic Party is just a tool for fundraising. Yeah. They're completely beholden to their corporate donors. Just which, like Republicans. Yeah, they actually receive more donations when they lose. Yeah. So this is why Trump was like the best thing that ever happened to the Democratic Party fundraising apparatus. Mm-hmm. Biden raised a record $1.6 billion for his presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. His donors included record-breaking amounts from pharmaceutical companies yep. and 230 billionaires. Yep. This was far more than Hillary raised in 2016. Yeah. So Trump was perfect for the Democratic Party for their fundraising. Yeah. But now look at today in October, the Republicans actually outraised the DNC by over $2 million. So it looks like without Trump to fundraise against, Biden's lackluster performance is starting to have an impact on their fundraising ability. Wow. You know, this is such an important point. I think what you've just articulated, I just want to repeat it. You're saying that establishment Democrats would rather lose elections than lose their donors because they fundraise better when they are losing. Yes, exactly. That makes so much sense, but it's so pathetic and horrifying. I mean, most of the time I'm thinking that I'm too cynical, but in actuality, I'm just not cynical enough. And then when they do lose, they blame the left instead of admitting that their weak centrist policies don't excite the voters. Right. They're always punching left when they have a low voter turnout. Which then gives them an excuse to move further right. Right. It's all that third way politics stuff that they have to move closer and closer to Republicans. They have to reach across the aisle like Biden did. Yeah. We saw this actually in the 2020 election. Yep. Biden won with massive turnout, but they lost seats in Congress. Right. And they blamed defund the police for that. <laughs> right. This is the Overton window effect, which we've described many times on this podcast, that the U.S. politics has been shifting to the right for decades under neoliberalism as corporate donors control politics more than the working class, more than the people. Today's liberal Democratic politicians are a lot like mainstream 1950s Republicans, and today's Republicans are neo-fascist. I mean, this is the, the trend we've been seeing. And as we've watched this shift take place over many decades, we've also seen right along with it this Democratic powerlessness and resignation over and over again. Like they're constantly wringing their hands, acting as if there was nothing they could do to prevent this shift to the right. We documented this extensively in our article for Dissident Voice called The Assistance, Not the Resistance. We see it time and time again. It's like, oh, we can't pass the $15 minimum wage because of the parliamentarian. And oh, sorry about Roe v. Wade, but now the courts are stacked with right-wing judges. 
even though Democrats actually confirmed these right-wing judges and, in fact, fast-tracked many of Trump's federal judge appointments. Biden says we're not willing to override the filibuster when overriding the filibuster is actually the only thing that he, he could do to actually pass any kind of bold legislation. And the Democrats have the votes to do it. They have the votes to do it. But over and over again, they won't get rid of the filibuster. And they just wring their hands like they have no options whatsoever, when in fact they have had every opportunity to enact bold legislation when they're in power, and they just simply refuse to. And this is how neoliberals are assisting fascism. Yeah, and they blame Manchin and Cinema as these rotating villains of the week or the month or the year. But that's just a total cover, because even if they didn't override the filibuster... Mm-hmm. There are so many things that Biden could do by himself, by executive order. Mm-hmm. He could enact Section 1881A of the Social Security Act to give us Medicare for all, something which Bernie had talked about. Yep. He could deschedule marijuana. Oh my God, imagine. I think they'd ever lose an election again if Biden descheduled marijuana. Right. Or if he forgave all student loan debt. Yeah, we mentioned that before. That's something he could have done. Millennials and Zoomers would vote Democratic for generations if Biden would deschedule marijuana and forgive student loan debt. It would be so easy for him to to just do these things and win the support of the younger generations. But instead, we have Biden's complete failing report card and a failure to use his executive order power to address the dire material needs of the people And in the same year as a violent insurrection attempt on the nation's capital where Republican congressmen aided and abetted insurrectionists, while proud boys march in the streets and black flags of no quarter are hanging in neighborhoods across the country, Nancy Pelosi is using this moment to advocate for a stronger Republican Party. Let's take a listen. Here she is just a couple of months ago in September of 2021. And I say to my Republican friends, take back your party. The country needs a big, strong Republican party. Here I say that as a leader in the Democratic Party, but we need a big, strong Republican party. You've done so much for our country. They've done so much for our country. (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, Wow. A big, strong Republican party. It sounds like she's advocating for just like, for them just to be a little bit more macho or like, you know, like just a little bit more powerful. They need more power, those Republicans. Remember when the Republicans had power under George W. Bush and we started a couple wars? Yeah, I remember that. Is that what she wants? I, I think that must be what we she says when we need a big, strong Republican Party, because she's been talking about this for years. Yeah, and Biden has too. He's always talked about wanting a strong Republican Party so he can reach across the aisle and compromise with them. Because when so many modern Republicans are neo-fascists, Reaching across the aisle is just a really good look. They keep saying we need a strong Republican Party. This is apparently the Democratic Party's answer to fascism is we need a stronger Republican Party. It makes zero sense. What we really need is a mass working class party, not a strong corporate fascist party, not a strong Democratic Party, which is going to enable the strong fascist tendencies in the Republican Party. Yeah, what history has shown us is that under governments with strong socialist movements, fascism could never get a foothold. You know, there's always a potential for fascism. Right. There are always these fascist elements in every culture, these wannabe fascist leaders running for office. 
But whether these movements take root in society and the broader politics depends largely on how well working class material conditions are being met. And under a socialist government, the needs of the working class are being met far better than under these neoliberal societies. Right. And that's exactly the point that we're trying to drive home is that when people's material needs are being met, when the working class is of the left and the right is comfortable and their material needs are being met, fascism can't really get a foothold. And we can look at many examples of this around the world. Let's take Bolivia as a recent example. The incredibly popular socialist revolution under Evo Morales was temporarily halted a couple of years ago with a right-wing coup. And the right-wing coup was the fascists that exist in every culture. They were these right-wing evangelical fascists. They were anti-indigenous. They were Christians. They came in with white supremacy and settler colonialism, representing all of the worst tendencies in fascist Bolivian culture. But then they were just in power briefly but the Socialist Party came back with an overwhelming win for Socialist MAS leader Luis Arce. This was even after Evo Morales was forced out of the country and his family was threatened. He was, I mean, it was a, it was a coup. He was forced out. And then Luis Arce wins this election. And the coup government, the fascist right wing contingency, were forced to hide and concede and their movement had to go back underground again. And it just goes to show that the people of Bolivia would not allow this fascist uprising to take root because they knew that the MAS party, that the socialists had vastly improved their quality of life. The majority of Bolivia is indigenous and they turned out in droves to make sure that those fascists did not stay in power. I think Bolivia can be an inspiration for us all. These right-wing coups happen throughout the world, and they're mostly sponsored by the United States. Yep. So we're getting close to the end of our episode here. I think we should kind of wrap up with a quick summary of what we really need to do to move forward and to prevent fascism from taking over in the United States and globally. What do you think, Crawdads? Well, I think we've already said it, that basically in order to effectively fight fascism, we need a mass working class leftist movement to resist neoliberalism and fascism. And what do you think this looks like on the ground, Taters? Well, for starters, we need to support the working class, the movements like Striketober, like the mass resignation. Mm -hmm. And supporting working class movements, as much as people might not want to hear it, means supporting union organizers that have right wing tendencies that lean towards, you know, might have voted for Trump, as well as those that are on the left. Absolutely. There's so much amazing organizing going on right now. And there are left and right union organizers in every industry. You know, you can look at the John Deere workers, for example. They have, there are a lot of right-wing unionists in John Deere, and they have a very powerful strike going on right now. The striketober, we know we have those, the strikes of the John Deere workers. We had the strikes of the IATSE union workers. We had Disney strikes. We had Netflix strikes. We had Amazon strikes. We had New York taxi driver strikes, Kellogg worker strikes, and the machinist strikes in West Virginia. So many workers across industries have had enough under neoliberal economics. They've had enough under pandemic economics. And at this point, they're just ready to walk. 
And like you said, Taters, many of the strongest union organizers fall into the camp of the political right. But as long as they're fighting for a working class agenda, the left has to support them in their fight for better working conditions and better material conditions for everybody. And just as urgently, I want to say we should also be supporting indigenous resistance movements against pipelines and the movement for Black Lives and all other movements led by Black and Indigenous people of color, especially in their efforts to resist capitalism and colonialism. Fighting pipelines is really about fighting capitalism and colonialism. Indigenous peoples comprise less than 5% of the global population, but they protect more than 80% of the world's biodiversity. That's incredible. Yeah. Less than 5% of the global population, but protecting more than 80% of the world's biodiversity. So what that says to me is that if we really want to protect the planet, the number one thing we should all be doing is supporting indigenous rights struggles, supporting treaty rights struggles, and supporting the land back movement. Because if indigenous people are in charge of lands, history shows us that they will protect them. I totally agree. I think that you know these indigenous struggles are really at the forefront of the anti-capitalist, pro-socialist, pro-communist movement. Absolutely. And if we're going to get rid of the settler colonial society and fight fascism, we have to support the indigenous. Right. And as the Red Nation says, the indigenous are the original communists. They, they are. I mean, their society is <laughs> fundamentally anti-capitalist. It's, it's a form of pure communism, not born out of Marx, but a form of pure communism that comes out of natural societies that are connected to land and connected to nature and that are in harmony with the earth around us. That's sustainable ecological you know, societies. Right. Unlike capitalism. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the movement for Black Lives as well. And mm -hmm. They're another movement that you can contrast it directly with the Democratic establishment right. and the Republicans with their capitalist agendas. Mm -hmm. The movement for Black Lives came out with the Breathe Act, you know, during the George Floyd protests. Mm -hmm. And this Breathe Act was a very socialist agenda. Yeah, it was it was incredible. Of course, you know, it didn't get much media attention, but it if you actually sat down and read it, the tenants were incredibly socialist. Yeah, it included a lot of really great items like a 10% cut to the military budget, mm -hmm. repealing Biden's 1994 crime bill, closing immigration detention facilities and ending ICE and Border Patrol. Yep investing in community-based organizations for public safety, abolishing qualified immunity, mm -hmm. repealing Trump's tax cuts, which is something that Biden actually negotiated out of his infrastructure bill. <laughs> uh, and it also included a pilot program for a federal jobs guarantee, which would take care of unemployment. Yeah. If we had a real federal jobs guarantee, this would be a direct threat to the capitalist system because suddenly unemployment would cease to exist. Right. This was all part of the movement for Black Lives Breathe agenda. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then they also, of course, defunding the police was high up there and they wanted to reinvest in social programs to address poverty. Yep which is where you know crime is born from poverty. Right. If we want to address the actual conditions that lead to criminals and criminalization of poverty, we should invest in social programs rather than in the police. That's right. Which is, of course, something that the Democratic Party and the Biden administration would never even come close to doing. Right. You remember when Biden met with those civil rights leaders right after the election, and there was that scandalous audio recording that went around on The Intercept 
that had Biden basically talking to civil rights leaders who had been completely instructive in getting him elected in the first place, telling them that they will not be using language in his administration around defunding the police, that they will not be using anything like that that might scare Republicans. And yeah, I mean, how ironic is that? Because if you really think about fascism and what the forces that lead to fascism, actually supporting abolitionists, police and prison abolitionists is exactly what we need to be doing in order to defeat fascism, because fascism is totally headed in the direction of pouring massive amounts of state spending and capital into the police and into the military. Yeah, and that's what Bill Robinson talks about in his book, Global Police State, is how the transnational capitalist class is investing in the oppressive apparatus of the police and the military and private security. There's a huge push to privatize these, this oppressive apparatus. We saw it with the Black Swan at the Dakota Access Pipeline protests. Mm -hmm where private mercenary groups were actually overseeing their res resistance to the protesters. Right. Well, it's the whole direction that our military has taken over the last several decades of private contractors, you know, that were in Iraq and Afghanistan and private mercenary groups. And these are the most profitable arms of the military and they demand constant funding which is why so much of our U.S. budget is going to the military. And then it's just being used globally to support the repression of liberation movements. And the working class and the poor. Yep. So I guess we should close this episode. And as we often do, I think we should close it with a tribute to the Black Panthers, especially because just this last week was the 52nd anniversary of the murder of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. Taters, what do you think Fred Hampton would have said about all these fascist uprisings that are taking place now in the United States? Well, here are a couple clips of him speaking on that matter. Nothing more important than stopping fascism because fascism will stop us all. And here's what Fred Hampton had to say about the white working class. I believe that white workers have been struggling. They're some of the most violent people in the world. I believe that what they need is they need a redirection in their ideology and in their politics. They need to know who to struggle against. The workers need to start to begin to learn that their job is to struggle against the bosses. And until they do this, then struggle is incorrect. It's like no struggle at all. We say that if you don't struggle correctly, you shouldn't struggle. But you should struggle. We said dare to struggle and you dare to win. Dare not to struggle and you don't deserve to win. Thanks so much for listening to Crawdads and Taters. If you like this kind of non-corporate independent analysis, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And please consider becoming a monthly subscriber at patreon.com slash crawdads and taters. Because even though we're anti-capitalists, we still have to eat and pay bills. Even the smallest monthly donation allows us to continue. And remember, always be anti-fascist. And anti-bruncheon. Crawdads and Taters is a self-produced and directed production by Aaron McCarley and Burian Sundahl. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Lord, Lord, tell my God that three for time.
but he ain't none of mine. Honey. Honey. 